You can open up your Bibles to Ephesians 4, starting in verse 28. If you had hung around Kelly and I for the first few years of uh, our son's lives, and even now you might hear it as well, but definitely during that time you would hear us say often, maybe even a hundred times a day, we obey right away. Everybody say it with me. We obey right away. As they began to talk, Kelly and I would often remind them by saying, we obey, and they would respond with? Okay, let's work on this, okay? My three-year-olds can get it. You can too. We obey? And we would say, good job, guys. Way to go. As our three children have gotten older, I find that I've had to say it less and less because it is ingrained in them. But I've also found that when I do have to repeat it, it's not often just because of sheer rebellion. It's often because they're caught up in something that they have deemed a higher priority than what their father is asking them to do. I mean, that Lego house will not build itself. Am I right? That wrestling match will not move forward on its own. Am I right? And so what happens is I have to say to them, guys, I need you to obey right away. They're too busy to obey, or sometimes they just simply do rebel. But as we look at the commands of Paul for the Ephesian Christians, and by extension his commands to us, I want to ask us the question of whether or not we obey right away. Or have we gone with a lot of Christianity in today's world that says obedience isn't necessary, it's all by God's grace anyway, so it's no big deal if I don't obey? Have we fallen into that trap, that false understanding of God's truth? Last week, we looked at the first two of Paul's six commands, not his suggestions, but his commands within the new covenant with God and one another. And I want to ask us, how did last week go? Some of you had rough weeks. I know because I've been meeting with you. You had rough weeks, and the idea of even trying to fix or change one thing in your life probably wasn't there. And that's okay by God's grace. But for those of us that had pretty okay weeks and we were able to cast our eyes on Jesus, did we command, did we walk in the truth rather than the lie, as we talked about last week? Did we intentionally push aside the lie? Did we follow the command to be angry in regards to our own sin and, and dealing with it in our lives and in the, sin, in the lives of others? Did we go immediately and personally to the person that we're in conflict with and reconcile? Did we obey right away. Those of us who are parents, we, we know immediately how we would feel if our children went, well, raise your hand if you enjoy that as a parent. No. Did we pursue obedience right away? In the current spiritual environment of blatant rebellion and cheap grace, there's little to no discussion of regeneration, of repentance, of obedience and sanctification. These are just as much a part of the good news of the gospel as the fact that Jesus has saved us by his blood given on the cross, by his grace, nothing we've done, nothing we've earned. That is good news, amen? Amen. But it's also just as much good news that he's given us a new heart and regenerated us, given us the Holy Spirit to drive us to follow progressively in a fashion that's like obedient children. One cannot discuss salvation without immediately also discussing regeneration. One cannot discuss justification without immediately discussing regeneration. I love this quote from the book Holiness by J.C. Ryle. It's back in the day. It's an old book. He says this. He says, I fear it is sometimes forgotten that God has married together justification and sanctification. They are distinct and different things beyond question, but one is never found without the other. All justified people are sanctified. And all sanctified are originally justified. 
What God has joined together, let no man dare put asunder. Tell me not of your justification, unless you have also some marks of sanctification. Boast not of Christ's work for you, unless you can show us the Spirit's work in you. Think not that Christ and the Spirit can ever be divided. And he says, I doubt not that many believers know these things, but I think it good for us to be put in remembrance of them. Let us prove that we know them by our lives. This morning, we are continuing in the eighth mark of a healthy church, as it seems Paul is illustrating for us. And we talked about this last week, that a healthy church is one that's full of people that have regenerated lives. The church, in essence, is a church of regenerated lives. And Paul is communicating that there is a lifestyle that followers of Jesus Christ live in as evidence that they have been saved and made new. And the first two things that he talked about there in the six commands that he's given us throughout this section is command number one, do not live based on the lie, but live based on the truth. He says, speak the truth with your neighbor. Command number two, be angry at sin in your midst, but do not add to the sin. Do you remember talking about that one? Okay, good, all right. We as a church are a preview of what the fullness of Christ's kingdom will look like. And so the church full of restored people, restored and regenerated saints who walk in the newness of life, battling back sin in progressive fashion, we show a preview of what eternity will look like. So Paul continues with commands three and four today, and then he's going to make a parenthetical comment that we need to heed carefully. So let's read the whole section here, starting in verse 28 through verse 30. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The first thing we see here, right there in verse 28, is this, this next command. Command number three, you can write this down. Do not place your needs above others, but reflect Christ in serving others. Do not place your needs above others, but reflect Christ in serving others. Now, as you read verse 28, and if you're literate, you might push back and say, Hans, that is not what it says. It says right here, don't steal. That's what it's talking about. It's a moral command, don't steal. That is absolutely true. You are right in that. But remember that God gave his commands to his people not so that they could earn his love, which is what moralism is. If I'm moral and I'm good, then God will like me and recruit me to his team. That is not the gospel. What he gave us his commands for was because he had already generously and graciously grafted us in to become his people, and we are now called to look like his people, to show his heart to the people around us. So let's break down this command that is continued from the old to the new and see why it reflects Christ. First, it says, let the thief no longer steal. In other words, the one who has been stealing, let him not steal any longer. Now, being called a thief in our moralistic society, man, that is a very heavy statement. Right? Really, liar and thief are the two big ones that will get you in a fight. How do you know this? Watch CNN or Fox News, right? I mean, that is what, they're a liar, they're a thief, they're a liar, they're a thief. It's like just constant, right? But this is talking about something that's a little bit bigger than just blatant stealing. 
to understand what this can mean for us at a principle level, we have to understand two things. First, we have to look at the context of the day. The idea here is not that Paul was speaking to lifelong criminals. Because when we think that, what happens is we just gloss over this command and we go, well, that's not me. I'm, you know, I'm not a thief, so I'm going to move on to the next. But that's not what he's saying here. He is saying, don't steal, don't make a habit of it. But this society of this day was made up of seasonal workers, farmers, laborers, bondservants. And so when the work wasn't there, guess how they provided for their family? Well, I'll just, you know, snag a loaf of bread here. How many of you have seen Aladdin? Anybody? Raise your hand, right? He and the monkey needed to eat, right? And it's true. But the question is, is why didn't Aladdin go get a job? Nobody ever asks that at the beginning of a Disney movie, do they? Right? But the reality was, was in this day, that's what you did. You had worked for a certain time and you worked hard, but then, well, I can just fudge on the fact that God says thou shalt not steal when I really need to. Now, this is partially why many commentators believe that Paul, when writing or speaking to other churches, made mention of the fact that he never asked to be given money, but instead worked and labored with his hands as a tent maker in whatever city he was in. Here's what he said to the elders of Ephesus, for example, in Acts 20. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul wanted to show that he wasn't doing what he was doing for money. When I started this church, I was making about $125,000 a year in IT. I do not make that now. (laughs) Anywhere near that. And in seven years, I have chosen not to take a raise because I want to show you that there is no reason, no way whatsoever that I have done this in order to make the big bucks. So when I ask you to give freely of your money, it's not because I want to get a bigger house. It's because I want us to reflect Jesus Christ because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, one day, I probably will have to ask for a raise, but that's not what we're talking about today. Second thing that we got to talk about is we have to look not only at the historical context, but we must also admit what stealing actually is. Stealing is when you place yourself of higher importance than the person you're stealing from. And we do this so easily in our society. Stealing at its core is an act of injustice. It is raising our needs and wants above the needs and wants of another person. We saw this with the recent water shortage. Did you guys notice what happened within the first day? Anytime there's an emergency, what you see is human nature kick in. And all of a sudden, people are buying bottles of water and price gouging and selling them for far more. Because why? They want to be servants? No, because they're greedy and they think they can make a buck at someone else's expense. As a society, we are mindful when others do this for their own selfishness and we react like crazed people on CNN and Fox News and Facebook and Instagram. But I wonder, do we see it as much of a horrendous sin when we pirate music? Now, I'm dating myself. You're like, what's pirating music? Spotify, Hans, right? But man, I can remember even five years ago, Christians pirating music like crazy and going, that's no big deal. It's just music. Not to the person who actually made the music and is making their living off of it. Well, what about the idea of tax breaks? Well, if I can figure out ways to manipulate the tax system, then, you know, I can give to churches in Burkina. Well, that's never what you do with that money because it's blood money. You're not going to give it to Jesus. You're going to use it to buy a bigger boat. 
But you know what? My, my need for that boat is higher than the system and the welfare that people need from that tax dollar. We create all these things. We slip out of work 14 minutes early because, well, just let the time clock round up. We steal from our employers. We steal from our spouses. We steal from our churches. When we take because we believe we are justified in our selfishness, regardless of how it affects the other, that is the principal nature of stealing. That is to be a thief. The church at Corinth had this issue. They were gathering for their Sunday agape meals. We know them as potlucks. And the rich people were whining and dining while the poorer folks were left starving. Take a look at this. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you. And you can just hear his, What? There's divisions? And he says, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine, meaning genuine Christians, that you may be recognized. What he's saying there is, those of you who are actually generous, I'll I'll know that you're actually believers. And those of you who are still doing the same old disobedient things, I'll know you're not really believers. That's what he's saying there. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. And remember, guys, in those days, the supper was an agape feast. It was a potluck. It, was a, it wasn't the little cups and bread like we do. It was this big feast. And so some people would dive in and eat all the food before someone else got, even got a turn, right? One goes hun- hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, you might think, Hans, this is like nitpicking. This is so small. But guys, it shows your heart. When you are first in line at a potluck and you take the spoon and you just, I don't want the other 50 people to get this. I really like this, right? It is in the small things that our heart speaks. If you're the person that constantly shows up to potlucks and you eat other people's food but you don't bring any food, you're that guy. You're that guy or girl. See, we have to realize that when we operate in those small forms of selfishness, that's displaying our heart for the world to see. One of the reasons we structure our church the way we do is to work on this portion of sanctification. You see, we as a church, we're not just about teaching. Because if all you do is sit in a classroom and learn and learn and learn and then never go apply it, then it's basically a waste of time and money and whatever else you're employing in it. Part of the reason we have community groups, it's so funny, I keep hearing the same thing from folks. Man, Hans, community groups are just, you know, I don't know that they're worth it for me and my family to go. Why is that? Well, because it's just chaos. Like there's kids running everywhere and it's just, it takes a ton of energy. And there's not, you know, we're not sitting down to a teaching, so I'm not getting much out of it. Well, are you serving one another? And are you teaching your children to obey? And are you helping parent your children together? Guys, that's far more worthy in terms of sanctification growth than sitting down to yet another teaching. I teach for an hour on Sundays. If you need more teaching, I would say apply the first hour and then come back. The reason we do community group and discipleship groups is because we have a chance to serve. When we bring food When you take of your time during the day to make food and bring it to the potluck, it is a base understanding of servant-led ministry. You're saying to the people in that group, I love you so much, I took time out of my day to run by the store or to make food and bring it to you. When you sit and help other people's 
children who might be disobedient because your kids are doing fine in that moment, just wait. Your kids will not do fine in another minute and they'll have to parent your kids. But we do it in a way that we're a family and we love each other and we serve each other. That's the whole point of community groups. It is literally to enter into the chaos, the muck, and the grossness so that we bear one another's burdens. It is the practical application for a couple of hours on a Wednesday to the full teaching that you get every Sunday. And if we dismiss that as, well, that's worthless because we're not, you know, getting hardcore teaching or sitting down to another Bible study, guys, you're missing the point. It is one time out of the week where we, as your leaders, say, let's focus on loving each other. Does that make sense? Please don't hear my heart as you guys are doing a terrible job of this. I am blown away by the love many of you show to each other. I had, I had a, a, a bunch of situations this week where people came and met with me or talked to me and they're telling me about all the things people are doing at that moment for them, moving them or caring for them or taking care of someone who's sick or bringing them meals. And I just this whole week I was giving praise to God for the growth I've seen in this church in the way you love one another. But if you're not in that, uh, in that part of the body where you're helping achieve that, I would suggest to you, man, be convicted today. When we put our needs, our selfishness above everyone else and say we're justified in it, regardless of how it affects the rest of the body, this whole view, this whole command applies to us. We need to have conviction in the small things and to be generous with our time, our talents, and our treasures. Using Paul's metaphor for the church as a body, I want to ask you a quick question. What is it called when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you have cells in your body that aren't contributing to the rest of the body, they're just simply sucking up for themselves? What are those cells usually called? Cancer. Cancer. Recognize that for a second. But when a body is working properly, all the parts of the body, what do they do for the rest of the body? They help the rest of it. They help it grow. They serve it. And this isn't about quantity of time or talents. That's the whole point Paul was getting to with the church at Corinth. He wasn't saying, hey, you know, uh, the people who can't afford to bring food to the potluck, you're less than. He was saying, no, your part of the body is that those who can bring you food, you get to participate in that. Because it's not about the quantity of time, talents, and treasure. It's about the capability and the generosity. You guys remember the story of the widow with the two mites? She went to the treasury and dropped her two mites in, which in our, our view is about a penny. And Jesus celebrated her And he was celebrating her in contrast to all the folks who gave a lot more, but yet it was such a small percentage of what they had that Jesus actually lifts her up. Look at what he says here. He calls his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So we must see stealing as both true thievery, yes, but even more in context for us today, the principle applies to acting unjustly and placing ourselves above others. Paul's point doesn't end here, though. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather, here's what we're to do. So that's what we're not supposed to do. Here's what we're supposed to do. Let him labor. And the word there is toil, work hard doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share. That's the whole point, so that you can share with anyone in need. Work is what we are created for. Isn't it amazing that our entire society is wound around the idea of not working? 
Literally, all of America is striving to not work and do whatever they please. That is part of the lie we talked about last week. We are made to work. Remember God's directions to Adam in Genesis 2.15? He said, Adam, here's your identity and your life story. This is what you're supposed to do. He put him in the Garden of Eden to, what's that word? Work it and keep it. Those words in the Hebrew are tend or cultivate and guard. And so we are to work our whole lives in that same manner, guarding creation, stewarding it well. Why were they to work? Well, because they're made after God's image. Remember God, when he created, how many days did he take to work? And what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. And so when God gives Moses the command about the Sabbath day, look at all the commentary he wraps around it. It's obviously important to him. Remember the Sabbath day, the seventh day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, toil, and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So we work hard to image him and show him that we're created in his image as a worker. And then the seventh day, we pause to realize that no matter how hard we work, all provision comes from who? From him, from the creator. And so this rhythm of every week having six days of work, one day of focusing on God, it helps us to understand who we are and who he is. When we twist that up and mix it up and break it up, we actually start to lose our identity. Some of you might say, though, what work can I do, Hans? I'm past uh, working age. I'm retired. I'm out of the workforce. Well, I don't want you to stand here feeling condemned today because while your labor with your hands may be done, your labor with your spirit has just begun. I know that this church, and maybe some of you who are visiting from other churches, this church especially, we need you who might be retired. We need you to help us young bucks who are too stupid to understand our own stupidity. We need you to help us understand the pitfalls of parenting, the pitfalls of finances, the ups and downs of walking Christ. We, 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 we need you to tell us what you've done wrong so that we can avoid it. We need you to celebrate what you've done right so that we can walk in it. We need that. We need you to be the older men and women that Paul speaks of in his letter to Titus, helping to build up the body and grow it in the grace of God. And if we all as a church and working hard can come together and bring our effort together, Paul says that we can then share with anyone in need. And how great is that to reflect the image of the God we serve? You see, we as a church, we, we help with DHS, and that's our local ministry. We, some of you are serving at uh, Camp Agape for the kids of incarcerated parents. These are ways we help some of the more vulnerable in our community. But this here of those who might have need is speaking about those amongst us in our family that have need. Sometimes some of you get laid off. Other times there are medical expenses. Many of you are wrestling with terrible trauma from uh, earlier in your life. And part of what we can help you with is we can send you to counseling and help you with that. Counseling is expensive. That's a lot of what our benevolence goes to in this church. And so we need to be a group that can pull together and hand that over to people to help them. But guys, the need is not just within this church. When Paul was going throughout Asia Minor and Greece uh, collecting benevolence money, he was actually doing it for a church that was far away in Jerusalem. Everybody turn with me to 2 Corinthians in your Bible. Go just to the left a bit and go to 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8. Give me an amen when you get there. 
Verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance and joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You see, people were starving in Jerusalem and up in Macedonia in the area of Greece and Mediterranean there. They said, we don't have much, but we're going to give above our means to help those who are starving. And he says, verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." See what he's doing there, guys? He's saying, man, if you are a Christian, you're made in the image of Jesus. Question, this is question and answer time, you ready? How generous was Jesus Christ to you and me? He gave everything. Am I made in his image? Are you? See, Paul is calling the saints not to be burdened beyond measure, but to recognize their own wealth and then give out of that abundance to the church at Jerusalem. And you can go on and read through the rest of this section. And it's amazing. Paul is just saying, guys, act like Jesus. He, they gave out of their abundance to the church in Jerusalem that was not in abundance. And I guarantee that there were those in Macedonia that were like, but I got bills to pay. I got things to do. I've been trying to save up for that toy. I, you know, I've got to go on vacation, right? Vacation is a human right, is it not? Right? I mean, that's, that's what we act like as Americans. But Paul's calling them. He's saying, guys, give to those who are in less, uh, less wealthy circumstances. Now, notice that he uses the word need. It's amazing how I hear myself, my kids and others use this word need. I need the new iPhone. I need a new car. We must be truthful with ourselves and recognize that we simply want what is good enough for the Joneses. We are coveters. And we have to repent from that. Remember how wealthy we are in comparison to the rest of the world. Guys, $40,000 is about the median income of Salem. If you make $40,000 or more, this is from um, a website that helps calculate this. I've shown you this before. If you make $40,000 or more American dollars every year, you are in the top half of a percent of wealth in the world. But Hans, I don't make $40,000. Okay, well, maybe you're at the poverty line. Maybe you are sitting in poverty right now today at $22,500 a year, you're still in the top 2.66% of wealth in the world. We compare ourselves to other Americans rather than other Christians. Let me say that again. We compare ourselves to other Americans rather than other Christians. Our fellowship and bond is not with other Americans, people, but with other Christians. Current estimates are that 75% of Christians live outside the developed Western world. So we need to reset our perspective from comparing ourselves to other Americans, which only leaves us in a state of discontent 
and instead compare ourselves to our brothers and sisters in the worldwide church, which should leave us overflowing with contentment, gratitude to God, and a desire to be generous. You see, if you give to the cause of the Lord and the kingdom, whether here or somewhere else, you will be poorer for it financially. But a brother or sister in Christ will be richer for it. And that is what we're called to do. As members of the body, be challenged today to find ways to steward your own money so that you might be generous in giving so that our body can collectively give to those in need. If you individually and I individually do not give, then this church cannot give. The body is only as good as the members. The conviction needed for this kind of change, guys, it's not going to happen because I guilted you on a Sunday morning. This change can only happen through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. It can only happen if you fully proclaim Jesus as your Lord and King and accept his Holy Spirit in your life. Only God's new heart placed in us can turn us from selfish thieves to selfless benefactors. We take care of one another because it reflects the work of God to bring about restoration and justice. Jesus, the King and Creator of all things, did not count himself so highly that his time, his talents, his treasure, his very life was too important to not lay it down for someone else. Instead, he laid aside his position in heaven to come in the flesh and serve even to the point of giving his life blood so that you and I might be drawn to the Father. And we have not fully engaged in reflecting Christ until we are willingly ready to give up our very lives for one another. And this comes in the smallest of ways. It comes in changing our schedules, clearing our plates, dropping one of our children's pastimes. It comes in giving up our children's bedtime one time a week for community group. It comes in giving up our comfort. Parents, when you stay late at community group on Wednesday night and Thursday morning is hell, you're actually serving your children and your community group. You're taking on a burden so that you might encourage others. When we give these things up, these small things, we act like Jesus and it reflects him to the world. And that's why command number three is do not place your needs above others, but reflect Christ in serving others. Well, let's look at command number four, Ephesians 4.29. I think I beat that one into the ground pretty hard there. So we'll move on to the next one. Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. This command is a little more steady regardless of culture and time, so we don't need to reword it for us to understand it. He begins the prohibition by saying no worthless word. That word no in the Greek is simply none. It's zero, zilch, zip, let none. Not a joke here, not a double entendre there, none. Now, I need all of your attention here because I have something to say to you. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I love you dearly. And dear church, I have often said that the week before a teaching, I process the same conviction you do on Sunday. And I must say with absolute clarity that this verse has cut me to the core. The attitudes I have, the text messages I I send to the world, the words that come out of my mouth and the texts that I send and the things that I think, they would seem naive and innocent compared to most of what the world thinks. But to Jesus Christ, I have to confess to you that I have used and expressed worthlessness many times 
as your pastor. And this command leaves no room for a joke here or a double entendre there. It says clearly, let none. Studying through this command this week has brought me a new conviction that my speech is often rotten. The word there for worthless is the word rotten. It's putrid. Now, I have no immediate occurrence that I need to confess. I'm sure if you look through my text messages on my phone to some of those of you in here that I'm closer to, I'm sure you could find a good joke here or there. But the reality is, is that this is an area of apathy in my own walk that I am asking you as my brothers and sisters to hold me accountable to. Now, you might have noticed that I called my speech rotten or putrid. This idea here is a piece of fruit that falls from a tree, and it might have worth to start, but it actually starts to putrefy on the ground. You ever seen that before? It's kind of gross, right? It's also like fish that's been sitting out too long. Look with me at a couple of places here. The first one, well, you can write this down. This is the command here. I went too fast. The command is, do not use words that corrupt, but rather words that edify. That's the command that Paul has given us. Do not use words that corrupt, but rather words that edify. A lot of you visitors right now are like, man, I didn't realize I was coming to such a convicting teaching today. Dang. This is what the people who go here have to deal with every Sunday. I'm sorry. And so in Luke 6, 43, Jesus is speaking something similar to what Paul read earlier. It says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus compared his disciples uh, to fishers of men. And he told them a parable about which fish were part of the kingdom uh, of, of heaven. He says this, this is from Matthew 13, 47. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. That word there, bad in the Greek, is the same word that's used in Ephesians of worthless. It's this idea that it was a fish that was laying up on its side because it was dead and moldy and putrefying. Kara found one of our goldfish dead one day, and she was like, is it supposed to be fuzzy? (laughs) And I wonder how many times I utter forth words where the Holy Spirit says, Hey, Hans, was that comment supposed to be fuzzy? (laughs) No, it's putrefying. The word in the Greek uh, is not just bad. It's, It's technically putrid. Again, remember that we are going to display an image in the world, an image that we were created for. And the question is, are we bearing an image of the one who accuses and destroys? His name is Satan. Or are we one that brings forth life and creation, and redemption, and help in the image of God the Father. Scripture addresses the topic of speech everywhere. Um, Here's one uh, from Proverbs, one of my favorite ones. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Current day proverb, it would go like this. Let everyone think that you're intelligent before you open your mouth and remove all doubt, right? Don't, don't let people think that you are an idiot by the way you say. Let them think you're smart, keep your mouth closed, and then if you open your mouth, you might remove doubt if you're an idiot or not. James 1.26 says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
Now, why is this so important, guys? Why is our speech, why is the, the selfless nature of generosity in the previous command, why are these so important? Where, well, our ability to create and communicate through our words is one of the main ways that we are built in the image of God. It's amazing how many uh, owners of dogs I see try and get their dogs to speak, right? Well, God only created us in his image to issue forth words. Think about the word in the Bible. God created using his word. He changes the course of history with his word. His word became flesh and dwelt among us in the form of his son. And his word is living and active amongst us, dividing our spirit from flesh and helping us to conform our minds to his will. His word is what saved us. So our words show whose image we are made in, the image of the accuser, the destroyer, the adversary of God, or the compassionate, merciful, gracious, good, and loving God that created us. Now, how do we know whether we bear the image of one or the other? I think after today, you might start to think, wow, I think I know. But let's take a look here really quick at James, because the book of James speaks of this very well. Go to James chapter 3 and look at verse 1. James chapter 3 and look at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That is my least favorite verse in the Bible, just so you know. That's a joke. Wow. All right. We got too serious here. Verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Think about this, guys. Think about if you get in your car and you're angry, and so you just yell, and you get even more angry. Does that ever make you feel better? Anyone? No, it never does. It just makes you more angry. They've proven this with psychological science. But if you get in the car and you start rejoicing to praise music, and you were angry, what starts happening to your mood? After one or two or three songs, you eventually start to praise when I am feeling terrible, one of my mentors at school, he just looked at me one day. He's like, why are you so depressed? And I said, well, because I'm just depressed. Life, life's hard. And he says, uh, have you sung great as your faithfulness? I was like, no, of course not. Why would I want to do that? I want to stay depressed. So now it's funny. I, I have this, the, it clicks in. I find myself at the office all the time. If I'm struggling with something, all of a sudden I just sing, start singing great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. And all of a sudden, I start feeling better. Shocking. Because the words coming out of my mouth turn the whole body. How great a forest, he says, is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Guys, this is another wonderful example of the understanding that we cannot say we love God and sing praise music to him if we do not also do so towards his people. You cannot say you have a walk with Christ if you do not also have a walk with his people. 
Words either edify and build up or they tear down and destroy. And often we become so callous to the power of words that we don't even know we are destructive. At many times, especially in my life, it's in the form of sarcasm. But guys, sarcasm I have found is hostility veiled in a smile. I must repent of that. And I must lead you in repentance of that. Other times, it's in flattery. The Bible often depicts flattery as a weapon used to harm people. I've said it to you many times, and I still mean it, that the people that come in and the first Sunday, they come up to me and like, Pastor, you're the most amazing teacher. That was the greatest sermon I've ever heard. I am immediately going, did they stab me yet? Where's the knife? Because flattery always ends up in somebody stabbing you. Speaking truth does not. Now, if you're affirming that the Lord used it in your life, praise God. I want to hear that all day long. If you're affirming one another in the work that you do, praise God, that's from the Lord. But flattery, never. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Flattery veils an underlying hostility and distrust where you're trying to work the situation. So let us all commit in this church to removing as much sarcasm, as much flattery from our speech as we can and instead speak truth. And for some of us, that might mean we're quiet for a while because we just don't have a habit built up of affirmation. But let's move towards that. While removing rotten language, we're also supposed to replace it, Paul says, with speech that is good for building one another up as fits the occasion. And it presents grace to those that hear. Here's what he says to the Colossian church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. Remember, guys, that the Holy Spirit is within us. And so we will partner in our words with the goals and the mission of the Holy Spirit. What did uh, Ephesians chapter 2 say that the whole point of the Holy Spirit is? To build up the church, to point us to, to Jesus, to draw us to Christ, to create a temple in which he can dwell. And so our words must follow this same goal. When we're not on that same track and we're using words to destroy or tear down or be sarcastic, we have stepped aside from the mission of God. And I know that I don't want to do that. Do you? Let's be on mission with the Lord of what he's called to do, to build up, to edify. And this idea actually helps us understand what it is to build up. Our world says to flatter and say nice things, but guys, to build someone up as a Christian is sometimes going to come in the form of affirmation, but other times it's going to come in the loving form of correction. I love what Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In our narcissistic culture, all we want is flattery, but that actually will destroy us. What we should be asking for is truth. Truth of affirmation of things that are good and truth of correction when we know things are broken. Church, I affirm your zeal for Jesus. You wouldn't sit through hour-long teachings every Sunday if you didn't want to know and follow Christ. I affirm your desire to love people in the world, to love Burkina Faso. We as a church have roofed almost 40 churches in that, in that country. I love your desire to, to, to care for people in DHS. These are all things that we should affirm about ourselves. And I affirm that you are learning to love and serve one another. And I want to also come alongside that affirmation and say that it is truth that we are a young, immature church. And we must quickly and efficiently put down our selfishness and our self-concern so that we might build one another up. We must build relational capital with affirmation so that when we have to say that hard word that hurts, it can be taken. 
And we must ask for the Holy Spirit to bind our tongue and to be submitted to him alone because our tongue can either cause harm or it can heal. I find myself as a parent correcting my children. And if you're around me, I do it in a loving way. But it dawned on me as I was studying for this because research says that it takes anywhere from three to sometimes even eight or ten positive comments to offset a negative comment. And I was thinking, man, for every course correction I give my church or my kids, I need to start doing eight affirmation statements. So I want to apologize to you because my tendency is I'm a driver. I'm a prophet, right? So I get up here and I command and I drive and I correct and I and sometimes I probably need to affirm you more. And so I'm going to try and do that more from here and as a father and as a husband, and I would ask that you do the same. Proverbs 12, 18 says this. It says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Do not use words that corrupt, Paul says, but rather words that edify. If we don't, we will find that words wound. They wound one another, our brothers and sisters, but Paul's point here is that they wound someone even more, even more harshly. And this is what he says in verse 30, back in Ephesians 4. To harm one another is to wound the very heart of God. Let's go back to Ephesians 4. To harm one another is to wound the very heart of God. Ephesians 4.30 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now we're going to take a lot more time on this verse next week. I was going to go into it today, but I'm almost already done here uh, in my time for today. So we're going to just focus on one piece of this. I think that we have built up so much so the individualistic view of the Christian walk and the gospel that we take this verse out of context and we perversely make it into some odd view of the Holy Spirit. I've heard this misused, this verse misused, along with the verse about uh, quenching the Holy Spirit. Um, Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I've heard this used telling non-charismatics to be more charismatic. That if you're not charismatic, you're not Pentecostal, then you're grieving the Holy Spirit. If you go and you read this verse in context, as we've seen today, as well as 1 Thessalonians 5, where it says don't quench the Holy Spirit, and you read it in the full context of the space, it's always talking about loving or harming one another. It has nothing to do with if you sing loud, nothing to do with if you raise your hands, nothing to do with you speaking in tongues, nothing to do with prophesying, nothing to do with any of the sign gifts. It has to do with loving one another. Because when we don't, we're quenching the Holy Spirit and we're grieving the Holy Spirit. To not love grieves the Spirit and quenches the Spirit's power. The Spirit, who is the divine agent of reconciliation and unity in the body, as we saw in chapters 2 and chapters 4 of Ephesians, is especially grieved when we use unwholesome speech as a member of the body of Christ to put down someone else or to raise our wants and needs above another. I think we often forget that when we wound the brother or sister in Christ, in which uh, Ephesians 4.17 says that the Spirit of Christ dwells in them, we're also wounding Christ himself. Now, the place I am most convicted of this is just in my marriage. My wife and I for 20 years have been trying to break away from the darkness and to walk in the light, and I'm so thankful for my wife in what she says to me. Sometimes I take it defensively and fight against it, but the reality is I'm thankful for her and the Holy Spirit within her drawing me to be more edifying and upbuilding than to be tearing down. 
We are marring the work of the Holy Spirit when we refuse reconciliation and act in a way that hurts and accuses one another. When we gossip about another person, when we backbite, the Bible says that we're devouring and destroying one another. I love this quote from John Stott on this section. He says, the Holy Spirit is a sensitive spirit. I got made fun of all the time as a kid because everybody called me sensitive. I'm so thankful for this. The Holy Spirit is a sensitive spirit. He hates sin, discord, and falsehood and shrinks away from them. Therefore, if we wish to avoid hurting him, we shall shrink away from them too. Every spirit-filled believer desires to bring him pleasure, not pain. Christians talk often about desiring more of the Holy Spirit in their lives as if it is all a passive activity that they're just waiting for the Spirit to show up. But the truth of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is given to us as we're justified and empowers us. But that empowerment does not result in a passive reliance. It empowers us to be zealous in our warfare against the darkness. It empowers us to daily take our hearts to Christ and say, Lord, help me to put down the flesh and allow the Spirit to have free reign daily to combat our flesh. And we're going to discuss this a little bit more next week. But today, I don't think that any of us in here desire to harm the Holy Spirit. If you do, if, if you desire to harm the Holy Spirit, please come talk to me at the end of service. This probably isn't for you, and we need to talk about what it is to follow Jesus in the first place, that, that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you in your place for your sin. And that he rose three days later and showed you that you could have victory over sin. Come talk to me about that truth and what it is to be a Christian. But for those of us who desire to obey right away, for those of us who desire to show the Holy Spirit that we love him, what should we do? Because you might say, Hans, this is easier said than done. I want to obey, but I find myself giving room to my flesh, resulting in a self-destructive cycle of shame and then more sin and then more shame. So what's the answer? How do I even begin to break free from this cycle of sin? Well, what you have to realize, guys, is that to obey Christ's commands is to display the very heart of God. This is the last point for today. You can write this down. To obey Christ's commands is to display the very heart of God. To obey Christ's commands is not to get him to love you. That's a works-based gospel. It's a false gospel. He died for you while you were an enemy. All works come from his loving gift of his spirit and his commands. And so then we view it as to obey Christ's commands is to display the very heart of God. We're on mission with him. And I find that so many Christians are still so caught up in, am I saved or am I not? Well, hurry up and accept Jesus as your king and then do what he says. Don't worry about the salvation. He already accomplished that on the cross. Instead, focus on him. Because obedience can only come out of a response to God's sacrificial, faithful love and goodness. You can't generate it on your own. You see, Paul wrestled with this same question. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, and take a look there in verse 21. Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Which is exactly what many of you in this room are probably crying out right now. I want to obey right away, but I just can't seem to do it. But he says, verse 25, the answer right there. You see, Paul is not saying in verses 21 through 24 that this is the state of a spirit-led Christian. 
21 through 24 is not what we walk through. I, I hear Christians quoting this all the time. It's like, oh yeah, that's why sin's in my life. Paul had it too, right? High five, we're both sinners saved by grace. We're hypocrites, no big deal. That's not what he's saying. Verse 25 is the answer. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, Hans, he says right there, with his flesh he serves the law of sin. But keep going, read in context. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order for the purpose of, he's saying, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul cried out in the hopelessness of disobedience that many of us feel stuck in, and the immediate answer of the Holy Spirit was to direct his eyes to Jesus Christ. Not to focus inward and go, gosh, I'm so terrible, God must not love me, but to look at Jesus and go, wow, God loves me. He died on the cross for me. Jesus Christ died for me to save me from my sins and to pardon all my unrighteousness. But church, he's done more than that. He's also redeemed you and given you a new heart. And this is the job of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. To point you to Christ, to follow after him. You guys have all played Simon Says, right? How quickly do you get out when you don't follow the leader? Now, we don't lose our salvation if we're disobedient, but if we continue in disobedience, the Bible says we are in danger of never having been saved in the first place. If we desire to follow, we lock our eyes onto Christ understand his steadfast love for us, and we turn our ears to the truth of his word. I want you to listen just for a second from Revelation 1.5. I want you to hear how the Apostle John describes Jesus. Just listen. Jesus, the Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him, Jesus, be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Church, this is your identity. You're not just a sinner saved by grace, going to go to heaven when I die. No, you are a kingdom, priests to God the Father saved by the blood of Jesus. When you go to the tables here in a moment, recognize that the symbol of the blood that you hold, it says that you are washed clean, no fear, no shame. You get to walk in the newness of life. You get to image who Christ is with your very lives. You are freed by Christ's blood and have become that kingdom of priests worshiping and serving Christ with your wealth, with your words, and with your lives. Today, church, we simply need to point our eyes to Christ and obey the commands of Christ. What's our application for today? What do we do with all this? Do we sit and, oh man, I am upside down in my finances. I am upside down in my words. What do I do? No. Number one, focus on Christ in order to follow him. Cast your eyes upon Jesus. 
Look full in his wonderful face. And the cares of earth, they'll melt away in the light of his wonderful grace. You have the spirit within you that empowers you to do so. And once you've focused on him, recognize that he's your leader and you're in a wonderful game of Jesus says. And obey right away in your wealth and your words. Well, Hans, what does that mean? That means today you go home and you look at your budget and you recognize that when you pay everything first and leave giving to the Lord at the end, then you're giving him the rotten fruit that's held on the ground that's putrefying. When you give him your first fruits, you give him the pristine fruit that was just picked off the tree and you say, Jesus, this is what I think of you. Is Christ glorified by your spending? And guys, for most of us in this room, it will probably mean that in order to give more, we have to refuse ourselves more. But that is showing Jesus' worth. And not just our wealth, but also our words. Ask ourselves today, is Christ glorified in our speech? I want you to go home and sit down and look through your text messages. I want you to think through the last conversation you had. I want you to look at your Netflix queue, and I want you to say, what is coming into my heart and then coming out of my mouth? And I want us to be people that start to recognize that we are not playing Jesus says anymore when we disregard this command. Hans, this sounds very legalistic, very concerning, because you're saying that I have to do these to earn salvation. If you think that, then you were not listening. These are responses. Before I met my wife, I was a basketball player, just slightly lower than a sailor and a truck driver in terms of my language and my view of women. I'm so thankful that I have grown in softness and allowed my wife to help change my speech and my attitude because it's a response to her grace, not a way to earn her love. When you hear the Holy Spirit's loving corrective call out to you, son, daughter, obey right away. And yet you feel as though you were stuck in disobedience. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and remember what he's done in saving you and redeeming you and making you new so that you might follow him. Remember that he has saved you so that he might also free you from the sin of living life for yourself. I love this verse from All I Have is Christ that we're going to sing in a moment. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. Let's sing and go to the table of communion today, all while reminding one another of God's redeeming grace and powerful spirit that lives within us and enables us to obey so that we can reflect Christ through our wealth and our words.